0: Welcome to this podcast from VJ Oncology. Today, we'll be hearing from three leading experts in genitourinary urinary cancer on the key updates in radiation oncology presented at ASCO GU 2023. In prostate cancer, key radiation oncology trials included Formula 509, Radicals HD, CHIP and pace a. In bladder cancer, hot topics of discussion included the use of adaptive radiotherapy and a debate on when to use bladder only or whole pelvis radiotherapy. Finally, in testicular cancer, a key discussion compared the use of radiotherapy versus surgery versus chemotherapy for the treatment of stage 2a seminoma. Dr. Sophia Cameron of Massachusetts General Hospital and Harvard Medical School in Boston is joined by Dr. Himantu Nagar of Weill Cornell Medicine and New York Presbyterian, New York City, as well as Professor Neha Vapuala of the Perelman School of Medicine at the University of Pennsylvania.
1: Hello, everyone. Um, we're here today at UASCO um, 2023. We're very excited. My name is Sophia Cameron. I'm a radiation oncologist at Mass General Hospital, um, and I'm here with colleagues. Hi, I'm Neha Papiwala, also a radiation oncologist at University of Pennsylvania.
2: And I'm Himant Nagar a GU radiation oncologist from Weill Cornell Medicine, New York Presbyterian Hospital in New York.
1: All right, great. So. Uh, Neha, what have you been very excited about uh, in the world of uh, G radiation oncology here yes. this year?
3: Yes. Well, there is a lot to talk about today, um, but I guess I'll start out with Formula 509, uh, the multi-center randomized trial that actually is trying to evaluate the role of systemic therapy intensification in high-risk patients with post-prostatectomy biochemical recurrence, uh, particularly of interest to me given the ongoing uh, ECOG-Akrin-8191-Indicate study that's trying to look uh, at a similar question of systemic therapy intensification. Uh, so Dr. Nguyen uh, presented yesterday, and what was really interesting is, although the primary analysis, which was looking at both uh, metastasis-free survival as well as progression-free survival, uh, the cutoffs were not met for those hazard ratios, there was some suggestion of benefit in patients, particularly with post-operative PSAs over 0.5. That was part of a pre-specified analysis, and it was a subgroup that they looked at, and there does appear to be some significant There, although for the uh, interestingly, for the other subgroups, in particular node positive versus negative, uh, there was not that benefit seen so far. So it's curious why that could be, you know, in terms of systemic therapy intensification with, in particular in this study, abiraterone, prednisone, and apalutamide for a six month duration. You know, the hypothesis here is that our highest risk patients. The ones with the highest sort of pretest probability of, of failure after standard of care post prostatectomy radiation and six months of androgen deprivation that that should be the group that benefits so I'd be curious to see if over time in addition to the patients with psa over 0.5 will we also see progression free survival and metastasis free survival benefit in those node positive patients that is at least I think in my practice, at least the patients where I am
1: most interested in systemic therapy intensification. So interesting data. Yeah, that makes sense. And what are your thoughts in light of uh, Radicals HD um, in that study, uh, given that that also you know, is looking at the same type of group of patients, but it was looking at different types of systemic intensification, more duration. Yes. Um, so what are your thoughts on that?
3: Yeah, and I think that's exactly it is the form of intensification, right? Does it take on a long duration form? Does it take on? a hit them hard up front for a shorter period of time form. And I think this is where we're still, I think, very much in this clinical quandary of what does your institution, what do perhaps you as a provider have more comfort with, particularly for toxicity management, we cannot forget that the toxicities of everything we do go on beyond the period of time that the the therapies are delivered. And so, you know, your comfort level and then, of course, the patient side of things, right? Mm -hmm. The shared decision-making piece cannot be understated. And I think we each can probably tell stories of patients who are highly motivated, say, hit me with everything you got, um, you know, regardless of of what the data may or may not uh, support in that setting. And then you have those that are really looking to minimize any exposure to therapies that compromised
1: quality of life. So we'll see with time how this evolves. Yeah, no, I, I completely agree. I think that per patient perspective piece would be very interesting to kind of take take a look at that. And I think it really does require you know, uh, you know, multidisciplinary discussion, uh, and then you know, sitting down with the patient, getting their getting their perspective, getting their thoughts. So. Absolutely. Okay. Yeah. Great. Himanshu, uh, what are you excited about? Um, anything that was presented that uh, you'd want to talk about or highlight? Yeah, yeah,
2: yeah. So yesterday was very interesting in terms of the localized prostate cancer setting along with the uh, salvage prostate after prostatectomy setting. So two trials were presented yesterday that definitely uh, perked up the ears and eyes of multiple audience members mm-hmm. uh, and social media. So the first one I'd like to sort of touch p- upon, which is uh, more of a confirming analysis of a. Uh, 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 the CHIP trial, which they've already presented their five-year data, and yesterday they presented their 10-year data, and it was basically a randomized trial, mainly intermediate risk patients with prostate cancer, a majority of the uh, received androgen deprivation therapy, uh, so what we would consider standard of care therapy for many of these patients right now. And it was looking at three different fractionation arms: one more conventional in the, the, the 37 uh, uh, range. You had the uh, uh, 20 fraction arm and the 19 fraction arm. Uh, surprisingly, uh, the 19 fraction arm could not be called not not inferior <laughs> to the 37 mm-hmm. fraction arm, uh, but it was very confirming to see the biochemical control uh, uh, from the 20 fraction arm. The toxicity remained low in the 20 fraction arms. So I I don't think it's necessarily practice changing, but definitely practice confirming for those that have already adopted moderate hyperfractionation in 20 fractions. Uh, That's our practice for those that are uh, patients undergoing moderate hyperfractionation. We tend to go with the UK standard uh, of uh, moderate Mm -hmm. hyperfractionation. Mm -hmm. Um, So that was very reassuring because as radiation oncologists, we know that, you know, we, we love early data, we love early toxicity reports, uh, but we know radiation and other therapies can have long-term side effects. So mm-hmm. seeing this 10-year data is very, you know, comforting to all of us saying that we're very comfortable with the recurrence rate and the low toxicity profile of basically cutting the fractionation scheme in half for these patients. Right, um, right. It's interesting, you know, because we always wonder why is that one fraction making right, such a Right, I was just time. gonna
1: ask, so what are your thoughts <laughs> about that three why ray, that you nice know? What's, yeah, yeah, what's yeah, going it's, it's on like there? These
2: three, the alpha-beta ratio. <laughs> (laughs) and like this confirms it that you need that extra fraction uh but honestly it's it's one of the conundrums i don't think anyone has a good uh uh, gestalt on as to what why that extra fraction matters to call it not not inferior to 37 fractions
3: i also sometimes wonder you sometimes do get into scenarios i think COVID pandemic certainly highlighted it where you might have an unexpected break Mm -hmm. and i don't know that we have a good sense you know when as we are hyperfractionating can, a patient who, you know, for whatever reason needs to miss a week because they're COVID positive and they can't come in, you know, I'm always curious about what's the impact of that. I don't
2: think we know. Right. No, exactly. I mean, when we know, you know, and had a neck cancer and cervical cancer, sure. you know, all yeah. those matter. Yeah, and then prostate that, cancer, yeah. you're saying. I don't know, maybe, maybe you do actually need to come back to finish that last part. Yeah, that's, that's yeah, three exactly. Three we like, need to insist we on have that. Three yeah, three we know. Randomized that. data, like <laughs> that one
1: fraction. Not, <laughs> yes. Not yes. Yeah, exactly, <laughs> you you just that extra yeah. <laughs>
2: three gray. Yeah, exactly, <laughs> got to get the dose in. Um, and the other trial um, that uh, definitely was an uh, understatement to say thought-provoking for all of us is mm-hmm. the PACE-A trial. So PACE is a brilliant trial design uh, from PACE-A, PACE-B, PACE-C that. Uh, some of it's been presented in other uh, meetings, but this one was focused on PACE, which was the trial that we all wanted to happen. We're glad that it happened. Uh, randomizing patients with inter- favorable, intermediate-risk prostate cancer and low risk to a very minor low risk in this patient population to either radical prostatectomy with modern surgical techniques uh, to, compared to SBRT with modern radiation techniques. Uh, and I would say, you know, this is the primary toxicity analysis, which was the primary endpoint comparing urinary fungal Function, bowel function and erectile function between um, both groups and I would say it was definitely at least confirming of the protect data right uh, we sort of saw the same sort of readouts in terms of the I don't say the absolute difference but basically urinary and sexual quality of life was reported higher in the protect data from those that underwent a radiation bowel quality of life slightly better with those that underwent surgery uh, I think what was surprising here is the urinary toxicity profile that we saw uh, in terms of pad use at two years now the devil's always going to be in the details so we'll have to wait for the paper to come out and actually look at the granularity of the epic subdomains and what was actually happening uh, but i think a lot of us were a bit surprised to see that level of pad use two years out because i can say you know you know, we all know our surgeons. We have great surgical practices, but this was randomized real-world data. So yeah. uh, I can definitely say we don't see this level of pad use at two years. <laughs> yes, after yes. That two yes. Years. Thankfully,
1: yes. Thankfully, <laughs> thankfully. yes, yes, yeah. yes. And I think one of the
3: things it's it's great that you bring up the Protect trial because I know when those data did uh, get published, one of the first thoughts from many of my urologic colleagues were like, "Well, those those are not." Reflective of our mm-hmm. outcomes, and mm-hmm. uh, my patients don't have that outcome. But you know, the reality is, I think, for many of us, depending on where we practice, it isn't always realistic to say to patients, "You're going to have the best possible outcome, no, no long-term morbidity." And what these data are, are, are I think, very sobering, and telling us is that actually, uh, you know. As you said, in real-world data and real-world outcomes, and we have to prepare patients for that worst-case scenario because uh, a number of factors can play into that, including you know surgical experience and. Um Expertise, so
2: and also you know we I mean, we focus sort of on the on the pad use there, but from the radiation side side, you know the bowel bother is still there. So mm-hmm. you know with advanced imaging and other sort of let's call them separation techniques, you know <laughs> yes. can we minimize uh, the bowel bother? And then again, you know devil's going to be in the details of the granularity. Is like what is that bowel bother in terms of the Epic subdomain? You know how much of a bother was was it? You know in terms of diarrhea, etc. So really look forward to the paper coming out to really de- delve into the details. And the third domain, which, you know, the delta on that was quite broad Absolutely. in terms of erectile function because yes. uh Protect was a mixed group of patients, you know, there was ADT in that. Yep. This was no hormonal yeah, treatment. No hormonal. So this is just five fraction radiation. Uh and we see, you know, there's a decline in sexual and erectile function from both arms, but the radiation I the delta from radiation to surgery is quite broad. So it yeah. was, you know. That yeah. whatever the technique of radiation we're using now uh, in this trial and you know that we're using in our own practices is preserving sexual function at a greater yes. level than what we once saw. So yes. that's promising for patients too. But yes. uh, again, to we'll have to wait mind. for the final publication. Right. Yes. Um, and uh, you know, n- you. N- not just trust what we're seeing on social media at this point completely. <laughs> and, <laughs>
3: and, and provocative question for you: uh, What does this mean for brachytherapy? I, yes. I know. Yes. So
2: you know, SBRT, as and you know, that's what we're seeing. So we have pace B data. You know. With toxicity, we're going to wait for the outcomes of you know 20 fractions versus five fraction being the, the bulk of that trial. Uh, we have NRG GU05. That data is going to report out relatively soon too. So it's it's again it boils down to speaking to the patient and what their comfort, what that shared decision making is. Uh, I would say you know LDR one fraction, HDR two fraction, mm-hmm. but when you get down to five fraction SBRT, non-invasive approach, you know outpatient treatment come in from anywhere from 20 to 45 minutes a day. There are different technologies to minimize sort of the side effects of the urinary and bowel subdomains now so um, it's going to be interesting and there you know internationally there's multiple five versus two radiation trials going on now. Uh, So if you get down to two fraction SBRT Breaky is going to be, uh, you know, I I, I, I love breaky therapy, but it's going to be a proposition value that's going to be difficult.
3: I know, it's (laughs) going to be tough. That is definitely an area. I I often say to my patients who are in this scenario the good news is you have a lot of options, the bad news is you have have a lot of of options. options. Yes, exactly. Because the angst of it all, and all of us are angst ridden as well because there aren't necessarily easy distinctions. But you know what? It's an incredible. World to be living in mm-hmm. that we have all of this mm-hmm. cancer research and discovery and ability, um, you know, to be able to offer yeah, these to treatments.
1: offer all these treatments
3: so, yeah. to our yeah. patients. See, yeah, in the
2: past five, ten years, I want to say prostate cancer in the localized setting was boring before, but it's yeah. gotten real exciting. Yeah. Yeah. in yeah. a yeah. very, a very a short There's period of time. a
1: lot going on. Yes. So speaking about advanced technologies <laughs> and you know, radiation is just the field has exploded. Um, so I'm going to talk a little bit about bladder cancer. So there are two very interesting abstracts that were presented uh, that I just. To highlight, they're thought-provoking, and um, I think they're pretty exciting. So, you know, adaptive, uh, which Manchu mentioned earlier, adaptive radiation therapy, where we actually adapt um, the treatments every single day uh, for patients. Uh, they they actually studied this for bladder cancer patients, and the, you know, bladder cancer patients. This is a this is a tough this is a tough situation because there's just a lot of bowel normal anatomy in that area. So, I really think that this is a perfect population to really consider adapting um, the radiotherapy and the radiation-based. So yeah, so essentially they presented, um, you know, looking at uh, dose escalating um, and adapting the radiation and they were, you know, comparing it, you know, looking at like whole bladder and then uh, tumor boost and then adapting and escalating the, the treatment. And essentially the, the it was very well tolerated. That's basically the bottom line. And I think that that was, you know, very, very exciting. Um, I think that this has a lot of implications for our bladder patients kind of moving forward, particularly if we're going to be adding on um, novel therapies like, immunotherapy we're always worried about bowel toxicity that kind of came out when you hypofractionate or you, you know, try to accelerate the treatment um, you're a little bit worried about that bowel toxicity but perhaps adaptive radiotherapy that's kind of where we you know we, where we need to go for these types of patients um, the other thing that was pretty exciting um, and very thought-provoking is there's a big question when treating the bladder with radiation do you treat the whole pelvis or do you just treat the bladder only and there's really you know two minds about it you know they, they think uh, they say across the pond but like you know in the UK it's really bladder only only and then here in the U.S., um, a lot of the standard is doing whole pelvis, and really it's never been compared head to head. So the data essentially showed that there might be a, a, a benefit to treating whole pelvis compared to bladder only. Um, obviously, it's thought provoking. It hasn't been studied in a trial, a um, trial setting. Um, so I think that this it was it's just something to definitely consider uh, because I think a lot of people do have the standard as being whole pelvis, um, and of course there's a lot of people that treat bladder bladder only. Um, I don't know what do you guys do yeah,
2: actually I, yeah I treat bladder only okay. um, for bladder preservation uh, I'm a big fan of the UK and adopting yeah 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 yeah, yeah. <laughs> yes I can tell and, yeah, yeah yeah but the along with you know with the radar trial that you were talking about yeah. it was it was great to see the dose escalation the adaptive yes. and you know we're worried about the urinary toxicity too and we didn't see you know a significant increase in the grade three urinary yeah. toxicity yeah. because a lot of these patients are coming in with baseline urinary mm-hmm. to- function mm-hmm. issues so it's very nice to see an adaptive platform a, a dose escalation platform yes. and yes. you know you never want to do cross trial comparisons or historical control but you know the bladder uh, intact rate and event-free survival is getting higher mm-hmm. from each Very subsequent trial yes. so yes. you know it's where even if you better. look at the uh, um, uh, the meta-analysis that was published in the Alliance not too long ago between BCON and BC 2001 you know this is sort of moving the needle up mm-hmm. in terms of so, so we're, we're getting better at what we're doing exactly. working in a multidisciplinary approach with our medical oncology yep, colleagues and urologists in terms of systemic therapy and offering bladder preservation. Mm-hmm. But uh, uh, to echo uh, Sophia's point, you know the adaptive technology, we're already seeing evidence of it in prostate mm-hmm. cancer from toxicity. We're mm-hmm. now or seeing it in bladder, bladder cancer, cancer. cancer from toxicity. So uh, it sounds simple, but if we radiate what we want to radiate and avoid radiating what we don't want to radiate... Yeah. <laughs> which
3: has always been the goal. <laughs> yes. yeah, exactly. yes. yes. But I
2: think we have the tools in the armamentarium to really deliver therapeutic radiation and, and move that uh, you know pro- profile of toxicity yeah. versus control much further now.
3: And i just yeah. like to point out the whole pelvis saga clearly transcends yes. uh, many of our disease sites. But yes. um, but I do think, yeah. and, and to just underline everything that you said, Hamancho, I think the patient selection piece is also so key. And that's where really these is. multidisciplinary mm-hmm. tumor boards, because when we When we pride ourselves on improving toxicity, you know, and essentially decreasing it with all these techniques, a lot of it does really also have to do with the patient and their baseline and all those other factors as well. So I think that's something we've also improved on over time. And how about testicular? Okay. Oh, yeah. <laughs> so I just, lastly, I just also want to
1: say, we don't want to forget about testicular. You know, testicular, you know, hasn't really had, had its heyday in a while, actually, but I think it's really coming back. Um, and so I just want to highlight um, that tomorrow we're actually going to see a very exciting debate uh, during the um, uh, the testicular session uh, for stage 2a seminoma, uh, specifically. So essentially, you know, historically for stage 2a seminoma, it'd be treatment with either chemotherapy or radiation therapy, specifically, it'd be more like BEP chemo. Therapy, radiation is delivered in a dog leg field, and then doing a boost to the involved node. Um, and recently, there's been some pretty exciting trials, uh, kind of opening up options for these patients. Um, in particular, surgery is kind of back on on board um, with RPLNDs, and so there's been a couple phase two trials that have been presented and uh, published that kind of show, you know, really promising and exciting data for these patients. But and then in particular, there's also a unique uh, trial that was uh, published, uh, SAC0110. Um, that was actually looking at combining low dose chemotherapy and involved nodal radiotherapy, really kind of, you know, taking both the chemo and radiation piece and de escalating both of those therapies and combining them for stage 2A patients. And the results were very, very promising. And again, it was a phase 2 trial, but it was very exciting. So, you know, we're really going to have the three disciplines duke it out tomorrow. So we'll see who, who wins, but, you know. Very exciting. So, but all winners, actually. So let's, That's like, right. we're, all That's we're all winners. So, all so winners <laughs> Exactly. The patient exactly. wins. Exactly. Yes, it's all exactly. about patient right. care.
3: As long as the options
2: are on the table. Yes, That's exactly.
3: Right. <laughs> I got to say, there's so much in oncology, right? It's like it's like the bell bottoms. They make their comeback. Uh, you know, there's always something that, you know, you think, oh yeah, maybe we're not going to explore that, but it has this way of yes. perhaps Bring coming back, back around, yes. and in it's some different form, and you know, seeing the benefit of it. We always want to keep an open mind. So. Yep.
2: It's, it's been, yeah, so far, it's been a very exciting ASCOG 2020. Yeah, it's been a
1: very exciting
3: meeting. It's one
2: of the true multidisciplinary meetings out there. Mm-hmm. Where, uh, everyone Absolutely. gets to present their data and everyone gets to learn from each other because we get to bring our multidisciplinary tumor board t- to the world. To the world?
1: Yes, exactly. <laughs> right. Exactly. So stay tuned for tomorrow's exciting yes. <laughs> meeting.
0: That's all for this episode. Take a look at vjoncology.com for more roundtable discussions from leading experts in GU cancer. If you enjoyed this episode, you can follow us on your favourite podcast app, including Spotify and Apple. You can also follow us on Twitter for live updates from Oncology Congresses throughout the year. Stay tuned for more updates and discussions with VJ Oncology.